0: Do you have a Bible? First Peter chapter 5. If you don't have one, uh, we do have Bibles for you. So if you'd raise your hand, our ushers are going to come down and uh, make sure that you get one. Just make sure you lift your hand pretty high. First Peter chapter 5. If you get a Bible that we are giving you, I'm guessing at a page number like 657 or 658. Um, I think that's the area roughly first Peter chapter five. I was studying this week and I found this interesting little, uh, ad. Um, it'll make sense in a second, but, um, it was a notice that appeared in a store window in Nottingham, England. It was an old store, store had been in business like a hundred plus years selling clothing and, uh. They put this notice on the window. Um, we have been established for over 100 years and have been pleasing and displeasing customers ever since. <laughs> we have made money and lost money, suffered the effects of coal nationalization, coal rationing, government control, and bad payers. We have been cussed and discussed, messed about, lied to, held up, robbed, and swindled. The only reason we stay in business is to see what happens next. LAUGHTER <laughs> Uh, that reminded me of Christians in suffering. Some of us. We're in, we're in the midst of going through a difficult time and we have no idea what God is doing and so maybe some of us are hanging on only to see if it, anything else happens, right? We're, and, and we're in the midst of a, an interesting and the final study of First Peter chapter 5. 14 weeks we've been looking at it. This book on suffering for a church And I think uh, Peter wrapping up this text is reflecting. In in fact, I've entitled the message, uh, Life Lessons I've Learned, because I think he's just simply pointing out from his own experience things that he wants the suffering church to, to leave considering. And after all, doesn't Peter know a thing or two about failure in the midst of pressure? I mean... This is the the apostle with the foot and mouth disease. This is the guy who always speaks before he thinks, uh, at least in the the early part of his life in ministry. He's a guy who, in the midst of asking Jesus, can I walk on the water with you, only to look at the storm and starts to sink. And He is the apostle who um, verbally rebuked Jesus when Jesus started talking about the suffering that was to come. So let's not talk about suffering, Jesus. That doesn't work for my economy. Um, He's the one that compared Jesus to mortal men at the transfiguration in Matthew 17. In John 13, he refused to have Jesus wash his feet. In Matthew 26, he slept through the prayer meeting that Jesus asked him to go to in the garden. Um, In John 18, when the high priest and the soldiers came to get Jesus, he's the one that pulled out a sword and ended up cutting off the servant's ear. In John 18, he's the one that denied Jesus three times and... uh, in John 21, he quit ministry to go back to fishing for a while. In Galatians 2, he was a discriminating, discriminating against Gentile believers. Peter knows what it's like to fail under pressure. And I suppose the specific pressure for suffering for righteousness sake, which is his theme throughout this list letter, still has the potential of failure in it, doesn't it? It doesn't matter if you're looking at, um, hey, I did it right. None of us like the pressure of people pushing back on the Jesus that we live out. And even in that scenario, there's a potential where we kind of not respond the way God wants us to when we, when we fail. So Peter's last words on the subject might be some of his most helpful. In fact, I've kind of driven, uh, written out a, a three-point outline. Lessons I've learned from the apron Lessons I've learned from the lion and lessons I learned from the king. Just in these few verses from verse 5 to verse 11. Peter's thoughts of what he's seen in his life and, and how it makes a difference in suffering Christian's life. So let's start with the first one. Life lessons I've learned from the apron. Let's read 5 through 7. And we're going to pick up kind of the second sentence of verse 5 because we've already been here, but I thought it was contextually connected to verse 6. So let's, let's read it. Peter says, Clothe yourselves, All of you with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The phrase "clothe yourself literally means to tie on the slave apron. That's why I've entitled this this, this little point, Lessons I Learned from the Apron, because that's what he says. Tie on the slave apron in your humility. Okay? And I think Peter has a clear picture in his mind, and I already mentioned it briefly, John 13. Remember, they're reclining at the table just prior to Jesus' arrest and his death. And in the middle of his dinner, and Jesus, knowing someone's going to betray him, he gets up from the table, he takes off his clothes, and he puts on a servant's towel, an apron. He fills a wash basin, and he kneels down and begins to wash the disciples' feet, remember? He gets to Peter. Peter says, uh-uh, not me. You're too good for that. And Peter says, well, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And he says, well, then give me a bath. Do everything. And then Jesus says, no, if, you're, if you've had a bath and your feet are the only thing that to be clean, and Jesus is making a point of servant humility. And when Peter writes, clothe yourself, wear the slave, a- slave apron in your service, I know he's thinking about what Jesus, the creator, sustainer of all the universe, did for him. Think about that for a second. Jesus always was. He created everything that we see. He sustains it by the word of his power. And he decides to stoop to sinners and to serve. As an example, to follow. He demonstrated the humility that Peter talks about in in tying on the apron. The the word humility means lowly minded. It has the the idea of not being too good to stoop. So, in our culture, this word doesn't have much value, does it? I, I like to watch football, and I like to watch pregame analysis for some reason. Um, I was listening to these, these uh, expert football players talk about two particular players. I don't need to name it. It doesn't matter. These guys are the best of the best in the league. But one of these commentators said, yeah, but they don't have any dog in them. And he went, to, went on to describe what it meant to have dog. And, and to have dog in them was they needed to be less meek and less humble, and uh, less gentle, even though they were the best at their position, their hall of famers, they needed more dog in them. You know why? Because humility is not a virtue. It's not a virtue. It's not a virtue in, in Peter's day. In fact, the only humility that was tolerated was the involuntary humility of slavery, it's the only thing anybody knew. In fact, they had to make up words to describe humility. And so this, this idea of being enslaved, can't do anything about humility, is the word that Peter uses to describe how we as Christians, suffering servants, are to live our lives for Christ. Tie on the slave apron. Nobody likes that. It goes against every, every fiber of our being, but Jesus did it. And Peter uses it, thinks about it, to describe how we, a suffering church, are to... Live our lives in humility. In fact, Paul said in Philippians 2, in humility, count others as more significant than yourself. How hard is that one? I uh, get a chance to to talk with pastors, and most of them are younger pastors. That's odd how that happens. The older you get, you talk to younger. Anyway, there is one thing I'm absolutely convinced of, and I say it all the time. I don't know if anybody's listening. You have to fight for obscurity. I was surfing the web this weekend, and we're, we just, just trust me, I have a different personality. It's okay. But this celebrity thing drives me nuts. For some reason, I look at it and go, how, how is this ultimately going to be good? I'm not certain, I know, and, and I'm not in a position to judge, but I know this. We have to fight for obscurity. That's why I tell pastors, you need to look for something you can do that nobody knows you do it, and nobody cares it gets done. Because what's gonna happen is you spend your time behind a pulpit and people think, oh, you're the guy. We like to listen to you and aren't you special? And, and we're not. And that's true for everybody. And, and obscure things like stooping low to wash dirty feet, the king of glory did. And so he uses that to, to describe, all right, suffering church, as we finish, let me just reflect a little bit on what I've learned. Here's a life lesson I've learned. Be small. And by the way, I don't know if you noticed here, but Peter gives us a few reasons why we should be humble like that. Um, Aside from the obvious ones that Christ was the example of it and that it's an imperative, it's a command to clothe yourselves in humility. How about this one? Did you see it? You should have highlighted that one in scary red because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So, If we live our lives for ourselves, if we are stubborn and unrepentant, if we refuse to serve other people, if we don't listen, if we think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think, then Peter says, you're going to wake up and find that you have an obstacle. His name is God. Do you know what it's like to have God stand in your way? Anybody? I know we don't want to tell those stories because they find us in the midst of rebellion. Um... I bump into a few people from time to time and they tell me their story and and so I'm very careful in what stories I tell you because I don't want to dishonor these people, these friends. Uh, But I'll tell you one without a lot of particulars. Um, This acquaintance of mine uh, cheated on his wife. Ongoing. Saying he was repenting, didn't repent over months and months and months, which turned into years, pretending to be something he wasn't. And uh, and by, by the way, it's just a side note, he was miserable the whole time. The marriage is over, it's, it's done, and he met with me a couple months ago, describing all the regrets, and I wish I could go back, and I was lying the whole time, and I didn't repent. And then he said this, and I think this is the perfect paragraph sentence for what it is to have God stand in opposition. He said, I wonder if God is ever going to bless anything I do again in my life. Because all he has is failure. If, If you're totally independent of the authority of God in your life, If it's your way, your secrets, you deal with what you want to deal with, then Peter says, please understand, God is in opposition to that kind of arrogance. God is a friend of failures. See Peter, for example. But he gets in the way of people who don't think they are. Proud and obstinate people, he stands in the way of. He gives one more reason to be humble. Do you see it here? In verse 6, I'm calling it the way up is, is down. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. The word exalt has the idea of being raised to prosperity, dignity, and honor. It's what Jesus said to the disciples when he heard them arguing about who was the greatest, remember? And Jesus said to them in Mark 9, if anyone would be first, he must be last and the servant of all. That whole concept of being last to be first, Jesus invented it. It's the way of humility. To be exalted in the kingdom of God means you must serve and wear a slave apron here. Now, in in this world, humility gets crushed. It gets ignored, it gets made fun of, it's overlooked. But in God's kingdom, it's esteemed. It's honored. Isaiah 66, I love this verse, verse two. God talking here says, but this is the one whom I will look. Now stop for a second. It's almost as if God from heaven is scanning the earth and he stops at this kind of person. The one who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Who catches God's eye? Where does God stop and hover? Humility. Broken, apron wearing, obscure servants who don't think of themselves but think of others Jesus types do you get it that's what he says and by the way church there is a crown of glory waiting for the humble and there are the words of Jesus waiting the humble well done good and faithful servant well done so the way up is down there's a, verse 7 seems a little peculiar at first glance. You might look at verse 7 and go, why, why did he put that there? It's not like I disagree with its truth. It just doesn't seem like it fits in the order. I, I think we can explain it here. Here's what he says, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Um, I think if you spend enough time here, you can see that what Peter is saying is that the essence of anxiety and worry is pride. Now let me prove it to you. Um, why do you worry? Now, you know, let's say, let's say you know enough about God and his promises. Why do you worry? Why do you worry about what you eat and what you wear? Why do you worry about your bank account and your job? Why do you worry? Isn't it because at the moment that this crisis, whatever doubt happens, you doubt whether God will keep his promise? Like, I, I got you. I'll meet your needs. Isn't that where it comes from? Anxiety and worry happens because deep down we believe God can't or won't do what he said he would do. The core of anxiety and worry is pride. And so Peter says, real clearly, cast. What, what means to throw? Just throw. And what does he say? How much? All. Do you see it? Casting all your anxieties. That word has the idea of to cast off in final confidence. There's a reason why you cast off all is because the source of your faith is so certain. Um, when my kids were little, I used to do some crazy stuff to get them to, uh, well, to trust me and to have fun. I used to put, like Ben, I used to put them up on high things and tell them to jump. Now, it's probably not a good suggestion or a good, like, the children raising tool, but but I would do it. And I'd say, it's a couple things. I, it's, it's fun. I would have done it. And, and, second, and secondly... Um, I didn't want him to be afraid of things, and I, knew, I wanted him to know that I'd catch him. So I'd put him up on the refrigerator, and his little knees would wobble, and I go, <laughs> "I go, buddy, jump. And the first, first time he jumped, he would get lower and try to limit the distance between gravity and his life. And he would get lower, and then he would jump. Finally, he was swan diving off this thing. Do you know why? Because he had confidence I'd catch him. Snapshot. That's exactly what Peter's saying cast all of your work. Give it, throw it all on him. You know why? Because he'll catch you. You don't have to stress it. You don't have to carry it. By the way, you're not wired to carry it. God didn't design for you to sort out the, the nuances of your life to have them work out to success. God says, I will provide for you. So throw it. Throw it all. Give it all to him and watch him catch you. In fact, the phrase is really rendered this way, to cast off in final confidence. In fact, uh, Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase said it this way, live carefree before God, he is most careful with you. I love that. So that's first, the first thing that Peter reminds us of, things that he understands from experience, lessons I've learned from the apron. Here's the second one he gives us, lessons he's learned from the lion. Look at verses 8 and 9. Be so reminded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. There's another lesson that Peter learned the hard way, right? In uh, Mark chapter 14, Jesus is talking to the disciples about what's to come. In fact, Jesus is making a prediction. And he looks at his disciples who have spent the last three years doing everything with him and said, you're going to all fall away from me. And what does our friend Peter do? mm everybody else but me. That was his bold, arrogant statement. And then we get to this really poignant moment. In, in Luke chapter 22, um, I like Luke's version because it's more descriptive than the other um, gospels about this particular event. But Jesus is arrested. You know, he's been praying in the garden. He was arrested. He's being taken to the high priest's house. Now, in the high priest's house, some have designed it where there's this like inner courtyard, outer courtyard. Peter is described in Luke 22 as sitting in the outer courtyard at a fire within eyes distance of Jesus being scourged and persecuted, right? So he's watching this whole thing happen, having ringing in his ears Jesus' prediction that he would fall away. And Jesus is declaring, not me, everybody but me. And he's standing at a distance and he's questioned not once, but three times, aren't, aren't, aren't you with Jesus? And you know the story. Right after the third time, the rooster crows. And this is the most poignant moment. The text tells us that Jesus turned from his scourging and looked Peter dead in the eye. Oh, my gosh. It happened. How did this happen? Why was I so afraid? Why did I fail? And he run, the text says he runs off and he's broken. He weeps. He's crushed. Low, My opinion his lowest point. Who could do anything with a mess like that? So Peter, I think, talking about the power of the lion and his attempt to destroy us, I think this picture is like fresh on Peter's mind when he writes this to a suffering church. And the first thing he tells this church is to be, be alert, to be ready. I don't know if you're, I, I'm a pretty deep sleeper, but I wake up kind of angry. What I mean by that is this, like if I'm startled, I'm ready. Do you know what I'm saying? And I don't have a bat or guns, I'm just ready. And I think that's the idea that Peter has in mind. You've moved into a new house and you're trying to get used to the groans and the cracks and stuff, and you you sit up to every one of them thinking somebody's breaking in. Peter says, be that alert. Be that ready uh, for your enemy, the devil, And I think Peter knew the difference between being alert and being distracted. Wasn't it Peter in the garden who Jesus said, pray with me, Peter, pray with me, because this is going to be a crushing moment. And we find Peter snoozing, sleeping through it. Jesus comes back, Peter, can can you just, can you pray with me? He falls asleep again. And again. Peter tells us why we're to be alert. Do you see it? Be sober-minded and watchful. your adversary, the devil. There's some things we need to know about the devil. we got to clear up some, some misnomers about him. Uh, mistakes people make with, with the devil are that some people discount him altogether. They've made him out to be a cute little figure with a red suit and a pitchfork and horns, right, and a tail. And he makes a great Halloween character. Um, well, that's not the devil. And some people have taken the devil and made him like God. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. There's a devil of everything. Devil of red lights and flat tires and burnt pot roast. I mean, there's a devil for everything. And, and, and those aren't accurate either. But he is a formidable enemy. And I don't think we live with that. And I think if we understood what the devil does and can do, then we can see why we are to be ready and alert for what he does. So um, he has one objective For us as believers, he wants to get us to turn from serving the living God to sin and to serve him. One objective. So here's a a biblical list, not a total list, but a biblical list of his efforts. He hardens hearts. He brings about physical sickness. Just see Job as an example. He causes violence. How about Friday for an example? He is sneaky and subtle. He tempts with power. He tempts with popularity and pleasure and money. He tells believers that we have the right to be happy. He tells us that we really won't be hurting anyone. Go ahead. He convinces us that we can stop whenever we want to. He's the one that when hard times come to say that God, if he really loved you, wouldn't be letting that happen to you. After you sin, after you fail, after you have a Peter moment, he's the one that says, hey, don't don't just come back. Fix it. Be religious for a while, because after all, aren't you a hypocrite now? He's a liar. He uses false teachers to mislead. He attacks the weak, sick, and isolated, telling them that God has abandoned you. He attacks new believers with, with doubt He attacks those who live in fear with more fear, afraid of death, afraid of sickness, afraid of not having enough money. That's why the church doesn't give because they're afraid they gotta take care of their own supply. He encourages us to live our lives independent of God. Figure it out on your own. Be independent of his choices. You gotta take care of yourself. He surrounds us with pleasurable things so much so that we feel no need for God whatsoever. And on and on and on the list goes. But church, I want you to remember something. It's where we started this whole study together. He can't destroy a believer. Peter, starting this letter to a suffering church who probably was struggling with Am I going to make it? He said this to start with. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. That's an amazing truth. The faith that God has given is imperishable, unfading, and God is guarding it. Remember where we started this whole thing? Satan can't touch us, but it is personal. Did you see that personal pronoun in that verse? Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary? He's not kidding. He wants you. He wants your wife. He wants your kids. He wants your church. He wants your small group. He wants where you work. He wants it all. He's your adversary. Peter could have said lots of things, but he's trying to get it personal. When Peter was in the garden falling asleep, it was personal. When Peter was denying Jesus, it was personal. And it's personal for us, church. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient, but he is busy. And part of what it is to survive suffering and persecution in a world that doesn't get Jesus is for us to be ready for those attacks that he clearly brings, right? So to be be draped and tied in humility and to be ready for his attacks. And he says this is what we're supposed to do. See it in verse 9? Resist him, stand firm, stand firm in your faith. There is a passage you are all familiar with I want to just read to remind you of what it means to stand firm. In fact, Paul to the church in Ephesus is dealing with the same subject matter. So let's listen up. He's talking in verse 10 of chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you will be able to stand, withstand in the evil day. And having done all that, stand firm. He goes on to talk about the specifics of what we are to put on in our armor. And let me just paraphrase it so we can move on. But Peter says this, this truth, or Paul says this truth, this absolute truth, he runs from this. He can't handle when you quote it. He can't handle when you live it. This truth, it needs to be in your life. You gotta have that in your life. You gotta have repentance in your life. Sinners uh, sinner saved sin, so we repent a lot. We pray a lot. We obey a lot. We believe a lot. We are around God's people a lot. The context that that Paul describes in Ephesians 6 is the context to describe what it means to stand firm in your faith. Some of us, now listen very carefully, church, some of us are totally independently rogue Christians. You declare a faith and you're all on your own. You don't have the intake of the word. You don't have the one another's. You don't have people confronting sin and encouraging weakness. You have nothing. You're totally on your own. The Bible doesn't know of Christianity like that. And Peter and Paul have suggested to us the way to stand firm is in the context of this body, believing, living, obeying, and repenting, and confessing together. Right? So we have an adversary. He's legit. But we are called to stand firm against it. And remember in verse 9, you're not alone. These kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the whole world. <laughs> one last lesson that, that Peter reminds us of. We've seen the, the lesson from the apron, the lesson from the lion. How about this one the lesson from the king? Lesson from the king. Look at verses 10 and 11. <laughs> And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Again, I, I'm, I'm predicting a little bit, but I can see this in Peter's mind. Um, I can picture Peter being overwhelmed with what God has done. Christian, do you ever pinch yourself? Do you repent yourself? How did God restore this? Are you blown away? You should be. If you're not blown away, you don't see your sin clearly enough. How How did he take your mess, your garbage, your secrets? How did he cover that and then make you something? How did he do that? This wonderful glory that Peter's revealing to us, and I think Peter's having one of those moments. Man, I remember when I denied him. I remember when I, was, I thought I was something. I remember when I was a coward. I remember when I thought I was gonna die and I, I was afraid. I remember. And yet Peter has this wonderful transparency of saying, but he restores. He builds up. He empowers. He uses. He brings courage to people like me. I think he's thinking about that Acts 2 moment, right? Right after Pentecost. Just days from his greatest failure. The Holy Spirit came on Peter Now at one point in his life, this pinnacle moment in his life, he's afraid of a little girl asking him if he belongs to Jesus. Now he's standing in the streets of Jerusalem saying, this man who gave his life and you killed is the risen Lord. 3,000 people ran to the cross that day. No fear. Right? I think what Peter is doing here is seeing the finish line for us as Christians and for this church. When he mentions the grace of God... The grace we know now, um, I love to play off Peter and Paul. They spent a lot of time together. Paul talks about the grace of God sufficient for circumstances. He actually uses it in the analogy of a thorn in his flesh. Remember? When, When things look insurmountable or unfixable, what does he say? Your grace is sufficient. And that's always true. Right now, suffering church, struggling church, persecuted church, uh, adversary against you church, God's grace is sufficient. You have grace right now. Every day you wake up and God's mercy for you is new right now. Every particular circumstance you're going through, every pain, every struggle, his grace is enough. How can you imagine Friday? I gotta believe that some of those parents might trust in Christ. What makes them get up and survive that? The grace of God. Because it's available. It super abounds at your greatest moment of need. It super abounds. And so I think Peter's reminding us there is this grace that we know now, but there's ultimately a glory that we will experience. Look at what he says, those four words. You see it? The Christ himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The word restore means repair what's broken. The word confirm means to make steadfast in mind. The word "strengthen" means to, to make well. The word "establish" means to build a foundation, a footing. Do you see what Peter's saying here? Only God can take a messed up, fearful coward who denies Jesus and transform him into this unbelievable trophy of God's glory and grace. Restoration. Peter knows what God can do. He can... Take a failure and use him. He can strengthen him with such courage. No longer is he willing to, or wanting to deny him. He's willing, like Peter did, to say, kill me, but kill me upside down. He was crucified in reverse, in public. Where does that courage come from? From this unbelievable work of glory that God does that you see in verse 10, because he restored He confirmed, he strengthened and established Peter. And Peter says to us, he does it for for you, church. He's telling us this whole last several verses what he's learned from service from Jesus, the king, who wore the apron. He's telling us what he learned from failure, dealing with the adversary's attacks, and he's telling us what he learned about the king and how the king goes about restoring broken things and building up broken things and making fearful cowards into courageous testimonies of his glory and goodness. Do you see that? I, th- I thought the maybe the best way to put a bow on First Peter would be to use J- Eugene Peterson's uh, last few paraphrases it's, it's wonderful so just, just listen to this and we'll, we'll pray together you're not the only ones plunged into these hard times it's the same with Christians all over the world so keep a firm grip on the faith the suffering won't last forever it won't be long before this generous God who has great plans for us in Christ eternal and glorious plans they are Well, will have you put together and on your feet for good. He gets the last word. Yes, he does. Amen? Amen. We've learned a lot from Peter and and from this perspective of what it is to suffer for righteousness sakes. And uh, I believe that God is doing a work. I believe that you're going to need this in the months and years to come. As you reflect, when you meet difficult times, you're going to go, ah, he's building something. He's making me something and he's receiving the glory for it. Let's pray. God, thank you for Peter's example. Good and bad, thank you, because we can relate. Every one of us knows what it's like to fail. Fail in our hearts, and fail in our courage, and fail in our testimony, and fail in our obedience, and yet, God, your grace covers. It superabounds, God, your intentions to build us into a trophy case for your um, great name won't be thwarted. So God, I pray today that you would uh, have these truths sink into us. God, let us be humble like our Savior. Let us be ready for our adversary. And let us live in the glory you've provided. Amen. Amen.